0: most of the events of chapter 7, we've been with Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's in the autumn of the year, before the year that Jesus is going to go to the cross. Jesus is going to go to the cross in the spring, so it's about six, maybe seven months out from that time. The the, uh, animosity toward him, those who wish to oppose his gospel, is, is rising toward what will become fever pitch. Jesus has gone to the Feast of the Tabernacles, he's taught openly in the temple, but he's not, he's not asserted extraordinarily publicly on this occasion just yet. He's not, he's not done anything to draw the attention of the entire temple crowd until this moment. We'll be looking this morning from John chapter 7, 37 till down near the uh, the end of the chapter uh, through verse 52. My title this morning, if anyone thirsts, let him come. I'll work my way through the passage as I go, if I may, about a paragraph at a time. This first paragraph, on the last day of the feast, that is the last day of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet Glorified. Letter A for following on the outline, the illustration. The illustration. You and I don't think as much about the availability of water, the, the treasure that is fresh water. For most of us, available fresh water is something that we, we just have at multiple, multiple places within our homes and kind of everywhere else. We live in a place where if you go outside, in, in most of our yards and, and dig a hole two feet deep, it'll fill with water straight away. And if you head out of town in most any direction, you're, well, headed into the swamp. It's kind of water everywhere around us. But, but the Holy Land of Israel is generally a desert. Go not far outside Jerusalem at all. And you're in dry, rocky, barren territory. In fact, in Israel, villages and towns were originally located in places where there were springs, where you could get water supply. And so to the people of Israel, water is an extremely vivid thing. And thirst is a ever-present, in fact, ever-threatening reality. During the Feast of the Tabernacles, remember the Feast is about commemorating those years of wandering in the wilderness between the departure from Egypt and the entry into the Promised Land. And during that time, God provided miraculously for his people. The the actual temporary dwelling places in which the Israelites lived during the the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles were to remind them of their temporary dwelling places in the wilderness, And since the time of the inception of the feast, the the, the Israelites had added an additional ceremony, sort of a, a water ceremony. And on every day during the Feast of the Tabernacles, the priests would go with pitchers and draw water from the pool of Siloam there on the edge of the city of Jerusalem and bring that water in those pitchers in procession up into the temple and pour that water out on God's altar as a reminder that God provided for them on occasion after occasion, not only food, but miraculously, God provided water for them during the days of their wilderness wandering. But on the last day of the feast, the day we come to in this passage, the procedure was different. On the last day of the feast, which letter A on your outline, the illustration, we are at that last day. They would bring into the temple exactly the same sort of procession, but the pictures were empty. As a reminder that God's ultimate promise to Israel, the promise of a Savior, the promise of a Messiah, that promise was as yet unfulfilled. And they would come to the altar with those empty pitchers and go through the motions of pouring, but there would be nothing there. And I believe it is in that very moment that we get letter B, the invitation. The illustration is the water ceremony with no water. But the invitation is if... Anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come to Jesus. That invitation shows up here. If you will, I don't have this on your outline, but there, there are some pieces, there are some parts. First, there is a prerequisite. If anyone thirsts, oh, we go through life so satisfied. We go through life so so full of ourselves but as an absolute prerequisite to the gospel is that thirst of soul that comes from knowing that we are guilty sinners before a holy God, that we have a great and compelling need. I don't know how many times in your life you've been actually thirsty. I don't mean just you want some water. I mean actually, truly thirsty. You don't think about anything else. And when your sin, guilt, the debt you owe a holy God because of your unrighteousness, when you reach that level of thirst, you're ready to come. And so there is the prerequisite, but then there also is the permission. Let him come. Let him come. May all who thirst come, if you're here this morning, you are outside of Christ and there is in you an honest reckoning, an honest awareness, who you are and who God is, your only means to salvation. We've pictured it in baptism, we've pictured it with the Lord's Supper. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners is the one and only means other than you you personally bearing forever the punishment for your sins in the universe's most thirsty place, hell. Your alternative is to come to Jesus, turning from your sin and trusting him by faith and you may come, if you will, the permission and then the partaking drink. Oh, drink deeply. Those of us who know Jesus have not just sipped, we have gulped that for which we are desperate to know the living God who made us, to know as Redeemer the one who was ordained to judge us and to know the forgiveness of the one who could justly condemn us. The invitation. And then John, the author of the Gospel of John, adds what one commentator I read called a a Holy Spirit footnote. Verse verse 39, what I've called on your outline, the information. John reminds us, now this about living waters flowing through the people who know God, he he, uh, said this regarding the Spirit. Because, to paraphrase verse 39, which I've already read, there is coming future for them, past for us on the day of Pentecost, a time when God the Holy Spirit would corporately empower his church for the proclamation of the gospel in ways that no corporate body of people had ever before been empowered. God the Holy Spirit had always been around. God the Holy Spirit had always convicted men and women of sin. God the Holy Spirit had always been the, the internal teacher of divine truth. God the Holy Spirit was not new to earth on the day of Pentecost, but the empowerment of the body of Christ, the church, well, is a coming new thing that here John reminds us about. So we have that moment. Maybe someone here this morning is literally in that moment right now where Jesus is saying to you, if you thirst, come and drink. And I would urge you, do not thirst forever. Come to Jesus. Not only that moment, but also then there are misunderstandings. And these are misunderstandings maybe most of us down the course of our life have had a time or two. Misunderstandings from which we must recover. (laughs) Misunderstandings that we must make right. Verses 40 through 44. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? <laughs> so there was a division among the people over him. and Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. There are misunderstandings. I see at least four here. First, letter A on your outline. Jesus matters, but, but, but not all that much. Some said, this really is the prophet. Now that's a reference to the teaching of Moses that one day there would come a prophet greater than him. Understood correctly, that is a reference to the Messiah. But here it seems pretty clear that what they're saying is, okay, yep, Jesus is definitely a big deal. Jesus is definitely worth some serious consideration. Jesus matters somewhat. You do know that's not enough, right? If your view of Jesus is that he is an important thing, even a big deal, and and that you would be or have been wise to take the, the package of everything that is your life, all you live, all you believe, all you stand for, and, and what you've done is you have, you have further accessorized your life by slapping some Jesus on it. That is not enough. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. He is your creator. You don't get to, to judge his relative importance. He shall judge your Sinfulness or forgiveness. You don't sit in judgment of him, he sits in judgment of you. So there was a misunderstanding. Jesus is probably a big deal, but not worth all that. Second misunderstanding, Jesus isn't who I expected him to be. Leave the first part of verse 41 and look from the middle of verse 41. Some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now what they didn't know, Jesus had grown up in Galilee. Perhaps they heard his Galilean accent when he talked. But Jesus had been born where? Bethlehem. And he was a descendant of David. But in the moment, what they're saying is, Jesus is not is not performing and conforming to my expectations. Then as now. Again, people want to adjudicate Jesus based on whether or not he performs and conforms to their expectations. It's much more popular, the, the, the modern monstrous aberration that is the health and wealth pseudo-gospel a, a false message about a false Jesus promising false outcomes. That if you'll get involved in whatever that loopiness is, you can have a Jesus that is mostly concerned with how happy you are today. Jesus' primary concern is not how happy you are today. Jesus' primary concern is how holy are you today? How transformed are you today? How evidently is the image of God coming forward out of your life? He's interested in his own glory and your ultimate good, not what model Learjet somebody flies around in. the loopiness back then they said "Uh, you know okay Jesus but we got a checklist of expectations regarding Jesus and until he again we sit in judgment of Jesus and until he hits our checklist we're not interested you better put away that checklist because he has in fact fulfilled everything the word of God says he would fulfill He is, in fact, who he says he is. There are some, letter C on your outline, who believe that opposing Jesus made sense. They believe that opposing Jesus made sense. There was division among them, and some of them wanted to arrest him. They still do. Oh, you can... (laughs) You can see it in how the world treats things they regard as fictional. Fictional. Everywhere all over the world, people know Pinocchio is fictional. So if you stand up in most of the world and say, I truly believe in Pinocchio, they'll say, Well, okay. But in those, many of those same places where the official position is that Jesus is fictional, you stand up and say you believe in Jesus and you will suffer. Perse- you know, nobody is persecuted for believing in Pinocchio. But all over the world, and make no mistake, it's coming closer and closer to our time and our place, you can be persecuted for claiming the reality of Jesus. Because some people think opposing Jesus is a good idea. And then letter D, there is the alternative, that Jesus is, in fact, exactly who he says he is. First part of verse 41, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the one and only way whereby men who are born and women who are born citizens of a world at war with God can find peace with God on the basis of his sacrificial provision. There were some who didn't stop with misunderstanding, but who pushed it all the way to mistake. Roman numeral three, mistakes. And these are mistakes most people make. Right belief in Jesus has never been mankind's majority position. This is a world that is at war with its God from the Garden of Eden afterwards. Jesus said that the way to salvation is a narrow gate, and there are few that find it. The road to hell is broad, smoothly paved, and easy to locate. All you have to do to go to hell forever is nothing. All you have to do to go to hell forever is nothing. It's the majority position. The mistakes people make. Letter A, first one I can do whatever I want with Jesus. Let me read the paragraph beginning in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees. They had been directed to arrest Jesus. Who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, that is one of the council, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Five mistakes. First, I can do whatever I want with Jesus with little consequence. Why did you not bring him? Why aren't you you doing with him what we told you to do with him? It echoes for me a bit of the question Pontius Pilate asked. Matthew 27, verse 22, toward the end of the trial of Jesus before Roman governor Pontius Pilate, who ultimately would sentence Jesus to death on the cross. Pilate asked the question in chapter 27, verse 22 of the Gospel of Matthew, then, what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That is life's most important question. Eternity hangs on the answer. Here they think, well, we'll just go grab him, we'll bully him, and we'll do with him what we please. No, you won't. No, you won't. Let her be. Another mistake they made, I am too smart to need Jesus. I'm too smart to need Jesus. That's the implication of the Pharisees' response. The Pharisees, when they answer the guards, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Don't you understand that the smart people are too smart to need Jesus? Don't you understand that Jesus is a crutch for the emotionally weak. Jesus is a crutch for those who aren't intelligent enough to see how the world really works. You see, there is an elite intelligentsia that's got it all figured out. And if you don't follow their lead, you're dumb. And if you follow Jesus instead of their lead, you're way dumb. Now certainly in our era, we have nothing remotely like that. (laughs) There is nothing new under the sun. And you will always encounter those who are just a little bit too smart for the King of kings and Lord of lords maker of heaven and earth, righteous judge of all the world, savior of mankind, he who holds the universe together by the word of his power, Jesus. There also, letter C, third mistake, I'm too righteous to need Jesus. Too moral to need Jesus. Look at what they said, verse 49. This crowd that doesn't know the law, this this rabble that's paying attention to this itinerant homeless carpenter from Galilee, this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Now surely we, Pharisees, we are not accursed because we are the the legalistic leaders in self-manufactured righteousness. We're the rule keepers. We are the doers of the deeds of the law. We're right with God because we are so morally good. Word of God says in Romans chapter three, verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You can't be good enough. In fact, your arrogant attempt to behave your way into right relationship with God just piles pridefulness atop all your other offenses. Oh, there is good news for you today. If you've wandered in here this morning somehow, and the story of your last week, last month, last year, last lifetime, up to this point, is a story of brokenness, lostness, failure, sin. If you've done things you don't even like to think about, let alone talk about, and you are aware, of the coming judgment of a holy God. That's the thirst Jesus is talking about. That's the first step come to Jesus because there's nobody in the room that's so bad Jesus won't save them right now. There's nobody in the room so bad they cannot have a savior. You know the more dangerous position? The more dangerous position is if you're in the room this morning and you think you're so good you don't need a savior. The person who's so bad they fear they cannot be saved is close to thirsting. May they come to Jesus, but the person who's so good they don't think they need Jesus, they're not thirsty at all. Don't be among those. He said, well, Brother Russell, I've worked hard all my life to be a moral person. I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal, I don't this, I don't that. Well, Congratulations, you are even with the paperweight on my desk. It also doesn't lie, cheat, steal, or commit adultery. Congratulations, you are up to par with an inanimate object, but you know, you know, because the Lord has put eternity in your heart, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, you ain't right with God. Unless you have come to Jesus on his terms and accepted his gift of eternal life on the basis of the cross of Calvary as proven by the empty tomb, you need Jesus. The fourth mistake. I don't need to examine the truth about Jesus more fully. I know everything I need to know. I have have looked at Jesus and made my decision and adjudicated him as something I don't need to be all that interested in. I don't need to be. You know, I don't mind kind of, sort of, being a kind of, sort of Christian. I'll even hang out at church every now and then. But I'm, you know, this this, this all-in belief stuff, this following Jesus as Lord stuff, I have judged that to be not necessary. Here, Nicodemus doesn't make that mistake. He shows us how to avoid it. Nicodemus advocates taking a more serious look at Jesus. Nicodemus, you recall, is the one who had visited Jesus in John chapter three, just four chapters ago, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus takes up much of John chapter three. It was Nicodemus who first heard our Lord say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Those words were originally spoken out of Jesus' mouth in the Nicodemus' ears, and here Nicodemus is not yet a believer But it appears he's on his way. We need to give Jesus a serious look, paraphrasing verse 51. And finally, that last mistake, letter E. I know enough about Jesus to reject him. I know know everything you've ever said about Jesus. I was stuck in church every Sunday when I was a kid. I got hauled here and I got hauled there. I even tried it for a while. I played along with this whole Jesus thing for a major chapter of my life, but you know what? I've looked at it, I've messed with it, and I am just not gonna have anything to do with it. I know enough about Jesus to make a well-informed rejection. Well, there were some who thought that, verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? That was a cheap shot at Nicodemus because to be from Galilee was to be nationally from the wrong side of the tracks. Search and see, they said in their oh so expert, oh so final judgment. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee Well, except Jonah, Nahum, and Hosea. you think you know enough to reject Jesus, I promise you, you don't know as much as you think you do. Come to Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come.